Hello, and welcome to the NeuroTwist podcast, where we talk about neurodiversity in the world of speech-language pathology and beyond, along with other therapy topics. I'm your host, my name is Emily, and I'm a licensed speech-language pathologist working in the early intervention setting. I'm also an autistic person. I was identified as an adult, and ever since receiving my diagnosis and learning about the incredible neurodiversity-affirming movement, I've been passionate about learning as much as I can, sharing as much as I can, and having amazing conversations, which is what we're here to do today. This is our fifth episode in the Prep for an Affirming School Year series, and today I am joined by fellow SLP, Caitlin, to talk about all things neurodiversity-affirming practices in the high school setting. I'm Caitlin Kelps. I am a school-based and private practice speech-language pathologist. I've been working in schools for eight years in mostly high school, but a little bit of elementary. I am an ADHD speech pathologist as well. And yeah, that's about it. <laughs> high school is so the opposite of anything that I'm doing right uh-huh. now. So that's part of why I'm so excited to talk to you today, because I just can't even imagine talking to a high schooler right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> so can you tell me like, what has kept you with high schoolers for so long. What do you love about working with high schoolers? Yeah. So I actually thought I want to do early childhood. I don't want adults, anything that's related to adults in grad school and undergrad. And then I also knew I did not want to do medical based speech. So for my medical placement, they put me at a therapeutic day school. And the only speech pathologist taking interns was the middle and high school speech pathologist. So I got thrown into it. And I absolutely loved it. So then my next internship was at a middle school. And then I only applied for high school jobs. (laughs) And they're wild. It's very still like student-led, but more like homework-based. The things that they say are wild. I There's things that they talk about that I never dreamed in my life I would be talking about with children. And that nobody prepares you for or trains you to do. But then when you really think about it, the vocabulary piece of like interpersonal relationships and romantic relationships is a little bit wild. And nobody teaches you that it's part of your job and you have to figure it out. (laughs) So in your high school settings, what does your caseload mostly consist of on average? Absolutely. I have a lot of autistic students, a lot of ADHD students, and then I have about half of my caseload is like our life skills program. So a little bit of a mix of everything, very functional. I'm still actually doing a lot of gestalt language processing using the natural language acquisition framework. And even starting that, I was like, I don't know, because they always say language is what it is in high school. And I was like, I'm just going to try it because they're not making much progress. And things like blew up using that too. And even elements of that with my self-generated autistic students in gen ed classes, when they would be having meltdowns or, and I'd be like, wait a minute, I think this is a gestalt. And that totally shifted how the team would approach that meltdown in a positive way, which was really cool too. That's amazing. And I think we're going to get a lot more into this as we keep talking. So I'm going to reserve my (laughs) follow-up questions for that. So can you tell me a little bit too about like how you started your private practice and then how it intersects with your schoolwork? Like how do those two play together? Absolutely. It's actually a great question because I think it feeds into our later discussion also. I started my private practice because I 
was feeling a little bit discouraged about the progress that schools are making towards being more neurodiversity affirming. And that's something that I love. And I love the family involvement piece. And in schools, we all know, all school-based speech pathologists know that the family piece can be really hard. So it's something that I wanted to do. And I impulsively, I thought about it for years to the point where I was like, I'm not doing it. And then impulsively one day, I joined the independent clinician course and within a month had everything done because I hyper-focused on it. And it's a little bit hard with scheduling being full-time in schools. So I had originally set the boundary of, I don't want to do weekends. Weekends are my me time. And now I have a full workday of Saturdays, which is fine because it's actually really recharging to me because it's a totally different type of speech pathology. School's very like professional. I'm sitting there, I'm writing, good morning, Mrs. Smith. Today, da-da-da-da-da, if I have to write an email to a parent, whereas for my private practice, I'm like, hey, listen, today, this XYZ, you got to do this. And it's a little bit more laid back, which is great. And it's a nice little mix, but it is hard with the time management piece for me. So you've been... In the field for eight years, Mm -hmm. can you tell us about when in your eight-year history in the field did you start learning about neurodiversity and making that shift? Did it have anything to do with you being an ADHD or yourself? It did not. I actually didn't know until about three years ago, probably. It was probably around this time on Instagram that neurodiversity really started like blowing up and I was panicked. I wanted to quit my job. I was like super overwhelmed. And then as I was like, I just need to take a break and just do a Google search. So I'm not hearing voices. I'm not. And as I was doing it, I was like, wait a minute, I have ADHD. That's why I got overwhelmed. That's why I immediately, I was like, I want to quit my job. And then I started thinking back to like being a kid. And I was like, yep, I really like to learn. So school went pretty easy. So no, I didn't flag anyone's radar as being neurodivergent because I got all my stuff done. I had good grades, but nobody saw me staying up till 11, 12 PM as a 15 year old trying to finish all my homework because I waited until 10 PM to start it. Or even like college, no one saw me writing 15 page papers at once because I hyper-focused on it and couldn't even break it up if I tried. It sounds like you went down the whole self-reflection, what has my life been thing that a lot of us go through. Yes, the panic, the second guessing, everything. And it's funny because even the therapeutic day school that I interned at was mainly autistic students. I was doing a lot of Michelle Garcia winner, social thinking, very ABA-like practices. And the whole time I did it because I was like, I want to be good at my job. And the whole time I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. I don't think that way which also should have been a clue to myself, (laughs) but it wasn't. And then as I took a step back when I learned about neurodiversity for me and did my own research first before, so I would just like scroll past people. I unfollowed quite a few people and not because I didn't want to learn. I just got so overwhelmed that I couldn't open Instagram and have it constantly be, you're doing this wrong every single time I opened So I unfollowed a lot of people that I have refollowed since and just did my own research and started there. And I think that's a good tip for anyone listening to that maybe is just discovering pieces of neurodiversity affirming practices 
is you don't have to follow all the people on Instagram at once. You can pick one place to start. You can pick a book. You can pick a podcast and go from there. Something that makes you feel just a little bit uncomfy before you are full uncomfortable. That's a really good tip. So was there anything that when you heard about it that you were like, okay, I need to stop doing this thing immediately? The biggest thing for me was expected and unexpected. And I think because that made sense to me because that was the one thing that I never loved. Because when we tell kids things like flapping your hands is unexpected, I'd always be like, but why? What's the difference? And so that was where I started because that felt doable. So then I made the shift with like my teams of being like, we could say safe and unsafe. We could give more direct feedback of that's too close to me. Can you do it over there? Because you're in my personal space, but the expected and unexpected for everything never seemed to make sense of like how we learn a skill to me. Because if, and at the high school, it's different. So if a if we're on community and one of my students sees someone that they find attractive and they start trying to follow them around the store, that is when we would use that's unexpected. And to me, that made a little bit more sense because that's a safety thing for the person they're trying to follow and for them, because the person that they're trying to follow may not recognize that this person has a disability, has some social differences. So that kind of made sense to me. But now we just say that makes them feel unsafe probably. What could happen if someone feels unsafe? They might call 911, then what happens? And then it goes into, I would feel confused. I would feel scared. And so making that shift of even that small language piece, I think made me feel better to then explore more Yeah, because I saw the positive effect. And I saw that it wasn't just like speech and ABA and all these things are doing terrible things. It was just the way that we were approaching it. Yeah. And that language of safe versus unsafe is one that I use all the time because I think it actually tells us what are our priorities. Mm-hmm. I use that. I've talked about this on the podcast before. There's a lot of focus in early childhood with following directions. For whatever reason, it's every direction. It doesn't go away. Good to know. <laughs> but so it, whenever I'm involved with those conversations and those goal setting, which I'm not always, but when I am, I always am the person that says, can we please make this goal just focus on for safety-related purposes, for the child and family's safety? No running into the road, not giving strangers a hug, maybe. Yes, and I don't love the word functional, but those are more, if we're going to keep functional around, that's what I would like to see, is functional or safe things. Not necessarily the neurotypical standard of functional, but the exact, like the no running in the road, because I even still have high schoolers that do that and high schoolers that are out in the community by themselves after school. And then we'll be on community and they just walk and we're like, what, what are you doing? You can't do that. Yeah. I even feel like sometimes I have to check myself with safety things sometimes. Like I, if I have a thought to go do something else, I walk off. And I have to think, do the people I'm with have their phone ringers on so that if I don't know where I am in an unfamiliar place, they'll know that I'm calling. Yeah. That's a good point of even how to teach those safe and unsafe things. Like those are those like reflexive thinking, executive functioning questions that we have to be asking ourselves all the time that I think neurotypical people do so naturally 
Yeah. They've just already thought of those things. So they don't let their impulsivity like take over when yeah. we can't always control that. So it's, I want to do that. I'm doing it now yeah. or over there. What is that over there? And I find myself all the time and people are like, what are you doing? And I'm like, Sorry. <laughs> or just like overstimulated and want to walk away, which is like a big one for me. Yeah. And I was going to say, I have been unpacking just because it's been showing up more on my social media. I've been unpacking the word functional so much lately because it is something also in early childhood that we use a lot. What is functional? And I don't, I just, I have a lot more work to do with that word, I think. That one is one of those very uncomfortable ones for me in a good way. It's challenging me. I agree. Yeah. Because I think the concept, I don't know that I'm wording this the right way, itself is a great thing of, I'm not going to use these really contrived things that don't matter to the kid. It should be functional to the individual. That's where I think, that's where I think it has to, the shift has to be made because when the therapist, parent, even parent, teacher concept of functional, is not always what's functional for the child. So the example that I'm thinking of in my head right now is writing a goal that's like, child will use like 10 functional vocabulary words or something like hungry, whatever, but not actually leaving it open to if they want to use a sign, if they want to use AAC. Do you get what I'm saying? Yes. And I even think when I get a goal like that, because I also work kindergarten through second grade, so I get the early childhood goals sometimes that are functional vocabulary. I'm like, I don't know what that means. Were you working on food? Whereas to me, I guess I do more like strategy-based things, but if I was going to write something functional, I'd be listing like, we'll use, and I take the word functional out, just say exactly what you mean. I think that's, we get so into the jargon that mm-hmm. I don't even think when we're talking to each other that we have the same idea of what that means. Yes. It's so like, abstract. There's yeah. no way. Yeah. And a lot of times I think the most, like there's one kid that I'm thinking of that she wasn't saying her best friend's name in a way that other people could understand her. And so we started working on her best friend's name. That is functional. Yes. Would If I just wrote, she's going to master this functional word, which is not how I would write a goal in the first place, but whatever. Another therapist would not think to ask about her best friend's no. name. So that's no. why when I write it, you just put, will say her best friend's name like well I don't know or I even put because I think for school too that the shift for writing neurodiversity affirming goals or just like more specific functional goals is hard because we have our little framework it has to match the IEP process it has to all of these things all these boxes it has to check but I'll even say then we'll improve articulation of high frequency people names or things like that to make it more specific, but still be functional for the child. That's, that is really great. So actually, I think this is a good segue point for us to talk mm-hmm. about school, to talk about <laughs> high school, right? Yep. <laughs> We've been talking about it, but let's get into the nitty gritty. So how about we start with the IEP ARD meeting process in high school? Absolutely. So for high school, we're not getting a lot of referrals anymore. So it's 
the IEP that they've come with if they're freshmen or the IEP that I've written. The IEP part can be hard because parents are so used to that medical model, even in a school. So shifting things to even saying, like changing my language for IEPs to be more strength-based, parents will be like, what are they working on? Where's their area of need? And I'm like, it's at the bottom, but it's things that your child has identified when they can or so like my social language groups for like my more mainstream students, I ask them, here's a whole list of things that a speech pathologist helps you with. I don't want to look at your testing even because your testing may be way off. It may show strengths that you don't feel like are strengths, or maybe it was a strength that day in this setting, but then in the lunchroom, that problem solving is hard or Even sometimes I do still write conversation goals because that's what the student wants. They're like, I would love to talk to my friends about my special interest, but I don't know how to work it into the conversation. So we build in, my goals have really shifted to self-advocacy. And that even includes, again, like going back to that functional piece, what's functional for them. Sometimes it's a self-advocacy script to interrupt. Hey, that made me think of this. And I'd really like to tell you about this experience that I had. So that way people can follow their thoughts, their communications a little bit more clear in that moment. They're not necessarily not interrupting or they're just making sure that everyone understands a little bit better. And in IEP meetings and things, that's really difficult for parents to hear by high school, especially because they've gone through 10 years of schooling where people have said, nope, this is how it is. They can't interrupt. We're going to put them on a sticker chart for interrupting. And then they get to me where I'm like, eh, they interrupt. It's okay. And I even write things like their preferred communication is less eye contact, talking about topics they're passionate about. And they're always like, that used to be in the areas of need. I'm like, but it's not anymore because they're 14 and they're still doing it as parents and other therapists would say. So, so clearly that's not going away. And that's okay. It's actually great. So can you tell me a little bit more about those conversations that you have with parents then in the IEP process? I usually start pretty blunt in saying when I'm first meeting a parent and changing those goals of things like, I don't know if you've heard about neurodiversity. Your child is neurodivergent because insert neurotype here. And sometimes it's things that I think blow parents' minds because I even have some kids with quote-unquote language disorders that are ODD, so that goes under other health impairment as an eligibility. ADHD goes under other health impairment. And so I think it's a little jarring at first for parents to hear that connection almost to like autism, because a lot of times my parents that have heard of neurodiversity think it's only autism when that's not true. And so a lot of times too, I'll say like, I'm an ADHD adult. And if I had known these things about myself growing up, my life would have been so much easier. So we're making the shift to self-awareness, figuring out what we need to learn best rather than just percentage correct. I want to empower your child to be able to advocate for what they truly need, what truly helps and understand why. And sometimes that takes some creative thinking to fit into a goal. I 
could pretty much argue that you can build that any of that stuff into any goal. It goes into comprehension. Can I understand if Ms. Kelps gives me a mini lecture about ADHD? Can I pull out the important information or the things that I relate to? Things like that. So being creative about how you present that information to kids and helping parents with that. And a lot of times when I say things like that, parents are like, that makes so much sense. But pointing out that a shift is happening. And a lot of times parents will say things like, I already do that at home. So they're already doing supportive things because they've recognized like my kid has been working all day. And so then when we shift it to, but that can happen at school too. And then they may not be as tired at home and they may not fight you as much on homework. I think when you can get that home buy-in of how if we shift these things at school, home life will also be easier, can be huge. That's such a good point too, that I do see even in my experience, parents naturally picking up on some of those supportive things. And it's only when another professional tells them, actually, maybe, quote unquote, you shouldn't be doing that, that they start to second guess it. But really, Mm -hmm. a lot of these supportive things come super naturally, because parents want to see their kids be comfortable. They want their kids to be happy. And they figure out how to do that. Do you ever have parents who push back and are like, no, I want you to be taking this type of data. I want it to be the same way that it's always been. I do. And typically those are families very involved in ABA, families with advocates that don't quite understand. So it's really coming from the advocate. I've had advocates really fight back on Gestalt processing, but then parents will email me on the side and be like, you'll never believe what they said at home. So parents will see the progress, but in terms of the paperwork, they want it to look very different because of this advocate. So it can be a little bit hard. And then I also find parents who are still in denial about that eligibility, diagnosis, disability. It can be really hard because they're still on kind of a mindset to fix it. This can be fixed. It's fine. I had a case a long time ago where a student was diagnosed as autistic late elementary school and freshman year. Parents said they're not autistic anymore. And because parents had enough support from other people, we had to take it off. And that part can be so hard because then how do we as professionals best support the needs that we see at school for that student? Because eventually that student started asking questions like seeing some of their peers with similar sensory needs be like, but I like to do that too, but they're autistic. Why do I like to do it? And then we just have to give a blanket statement of things like everybody has different sensory needs. When we as professionals at school see, like, you do probably identify more with autism than this other learning disability that we gave you. So, of course, that doesn't make sense to you because in your brain, you know you best too. And so that can be really hard. And I don't Um, know that I found a perfect way to navigate it for those parents in denial because I can't force that parent to think the way that I think. Yeah, I think that's a journey, a mindset that starts so early on too. I have other people in the ECI system telling me like, oh, they they had the autism label here, but by the time they were done with ECI, the autism label got taken away. Yay! But like- It's not a bad thing. All And all I'm thinking, yeah, is do you- even understand like the 
confusion and potential trauma that you're setting this student up for and the trauma that you may have already put onto them right. by getting them to that point. Mm-hmm. And then the from the parent side, not actually internalizing that reality and having that curing type of mindset instilled in you from the people who you trust right to help your family and your child so much confusion it's so So hard yeah and Um, I always for my private practice that's what I always start off with parents too is I'm going to be very different from other therapists that you've met I'm going to do things and you're going to say why are you doing that and I'm going to stop and I'm going to tell you because being a parent is hard enough And then if you've never raised a neurodivergent child or you're neurotypical and not quite that, again, that multiple perspectives, that's another challenge. And I do recognize that. So I think being very, again, not blunt, we'll go direct, very direct about that is helpful too. It's not a bad thing. We just have to shift. I'm saying shift a lot, but that's okay. (laughs) We're always shifting. I I feel like this question may be more appropriate later, but it's just something I'm thinking right now. Mm-hmm. So I'll ask you now. A conversation that I've been having with some other peers on social media is about autism parents thinking that they understand the perspective of being autistic because they have an autistic child and then ignoring the perspectives of autistic people. My question about that is, have you ever helped an autistic, like almost young adult, basically advocate for their perspective, like with their parents or with teachers or anything like that? Is that something that you've worked on? Yeah. I write a lot of what I call, and I don't know that this is the best way for me to call it, but I call it like an effective communication goal. But I do want to clarify that effective communication. And the first step of teaching a student this is that only they can determine if their communication was effective. It's not based on other people's perspectives. It's not based on other people's reactions. It's not based on what other people want or need. It's only what they want and need. You need to teach me that. (laughs) I'll send you a visual. You need to be my speech pathologist because I need that internalized in my head so badly. It's so hard because again, it's something that, especially by high school, these kids have been taught the exact opposite. And it's something I feel very passionate about. And so I think sometimes to my students, I come on a little strong, (laughs) but it's just really following steps of what's my intent. And so as silly as that seems, I go through communicative functions with my high schoolers and I write goals like, we'll identify their communicative function. And people are like, that feels so young. I'm like, but they can't, they tell me they're not sure why they're communicating. And that's the first step. And I try to relate a lot of this back to executive functioning needs as well. So we always have to have a starting point and some of those reflexive questions of like, why am I communicating? What do I want the person to find out? So we teach those things and then we go through, I'm going to pick a style that I think works or will work to get me what I want and need. Am I going to be direct? Is it okay to be blunt? And we talk about if your intent is to make someone mad, you're going to want to use blunt. That's going to do it. And so I teach them in very, I use some contrived things, but it's also very realistic and it's very new. I'm very neutral about all of these things. Nothing is right or wrong. So that way we go through all of these steps. When they come back in, 
with maybe a problem, I say, let's talk about the communication. So then we're using real life situations from them. And so for a parent or a teacher, they'll say, my mom doesn't get it. What did you say? Or what did you do to communicate? And if they say, I just walked away, we use that as their communication style. I walked away. What was mom's reaction? What was your reaction then? And then usually, spoiler alert, it ends up in them fighting or the student being extremely dysregulated. So then we go through and we script what they could say. We talk about what did you want and what were you trying to communicate when you stayed quiet or turned away or walked away? So that way we do that problem solving in there. We talk about the effective communication because again, it all goes together. So it's really hard to just say, we're going to do problem solving and you have to pick solutions and then pick positives and negatives and pick the best solution because real life doesn't work that way. So I find that if I can do more step-based goals, even my kids are more successful and able to advocate better. It doesn't always work. Sometimes it takes some teamwork of me saying, I'm going to email this teacher and say, you're going to do this. And I'm going to tell them how to respond. And I know real life doesn't work that way. Because when I first started doing this, teachers always were like, that's not real life. They can't have everything scripted out for them. But this time they do. Next time, I'll just say they're coming to tell you this. This is how I would like the outcome to be. If it's they want a new seat or I'd like you to honor it. And then maybe the next time the teacher's like, that really can't happen. And maybe I prep the kid of, you're going to go ask this, but I'm telling you, it may not happen. So I'm prepping and we're working from there. Similar to how we honor communication for our little friends of they're going to say they want this and you honor it every time at first to teach that meaningful communication, even though all the time it may not be a choice, whether it's for safety or unavailable or it's the same thing. We still have to do that with our high schoolers. And also honoring their communication doesn't mean giving it say yes every single time, mm-hmm. even for the little kids. Yep. It, and that's where these just oh, telling a parent that. that you want that. I know you want that. I hear you. I get it. But for XYZ reason, we can't. Presuming that competence. Yes. They can understand the reasoning. And maybe I say it a few different ways. I just had that conversation with a parent. They go for a walk every night as a family. And for the first time, my student said, I don't want to go. And mom was like, we said yes. We said that's fine. And I said, I'm so proud of you. She said, but then the next time it wasn't a choice. So the first time the brother was also staying home. So someone was there with the student. The second time the brother was going with, she said, how do we handle that? We made him go and it didn't feel good. And I said, totally. I said, I would say something like, I hear you saying you don't want to go. I understand. I'll come back in two minutes and we'll talk about it. So honoring that a little bit. And then she's like, well, what do I do in two minutes? I said, in two minutes, you come back and say, everybody else is leaving. It's not safe to stay home by yourself. So do you want to go now or do you want to go in two minutes? And giving that control back a little bit, but they're still going, but we gave a little bit of time to process the fact that they're not getting what they want because that's important too. Sometimes that's all it takes. And I always say too, especially with my littles, they might not understand right now, but if we never explain those things, if we never like use that language with them, then they're never going to understand It, it just, it feels logical to me, but I think a lot of people see kids who are non-speaking or have delays or disability in XYZ areas and think I shouldn't even bother because they're not going to understand. 
And Mm -hmm. that's not really, it's obviously not helpful. No. Because then it just gets into that forced compliance too. Of I know why you have to do this, but if I never tell you, then I'm just teaching you to blindly accept what I say. Absolutely. Yeah. (sighs) And that's icky. It's icky. It gets deep. Really professional terms there. It's icky. It is icky. And it feels icky and people know that it feels icky, but when you have a culture, like a medical culture and educational culture that says that's the right thing to do. Speaking of educational culture, I wanted to ask you about the IEP process. What are some ways that you, because I know that you have different boxes you have to check and different guidelines and criteria you have to meet. So do you have any ways that you hack the IEP process to make it fit what you want to see? I do. I add everything into accommodations and teams that are more open to making the shift themselves to neurodiversity affirming practices, I usually will send an email like, hey, this is what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about writing in there access to multimodal communication and in parentheses, putting a break card, access to a phone app, because I, again, teach that to all of my students, no matter what. I always assume people will be open to hearing my professional opinion. Teams that because unfortunately it happens. We don't always get along with everyone in schools. And that's what makes being a school professional hard for me personally. Teams that have shown me over and over again that they just want neurotypical behavior from a student. I put the accommodations in a little bit before the meeting, or I guess not before the meeting, but before the paperwork goes home and I don't say anything. And then if they have questions, they can ask me before the meeting. Otherwise, they're going to hear me talk about it in the meeting. And typically, because I'm doing things that are supporting the students' access to education, parents are like, that sounds great. Wow, I've never heard that accommodation before. I didn't know that was a choice. And then teachers can't say anything. I don't know that I would suggest this route. It feels a little manipulative to me. It feels a little shady. And I didn't used to always be like that but I think my frustration level has really grown with people not as willing to hear that perspective like we were talking about earlier. And I know that I'm there not to make friends with the people that I work with. That's an added bonus if it works, but for that child and what I think is best for the child and going to help them long-term. Okay, so let's get into this then. Let's get into the teachers. (laughs) So getting teachers on board navigating those difficult conversations, all of it. I want to hear it all. (laughs) Yeah. I will say right away that the biggest pushback I hear all the time is that's not real life. I'm like- And I bet that's harder too at the high school level because they are so close to what we consider real life. Yes. And so then I always, what's actually happened within the last year is as I've discovered more about myself and my ADHD- I started unmasking my ADHD more. So when they say, when I say, just let them sit on the floor, teachers say, that's not real life. You can't do that. The next day when they walk by my office, I'm sitting on the floor working on my laptop because it is real life. I can do it. And a lot of times then I'll ask the kid, what do you want to do in life when they say things like this? And they're like, I want to work in an office by myself. I don't want to talk to anybody. I want to sit in my own cubicle as an example. And so then when they're, 
stimming in class and they say that's not real life, that's going to be distracting, people won't like that. I'm like, no, they want to work in a cubicle. Nobody's going to be able to see it. What does it matter? And that's the thing about real life too is that in real life, good or bad, adults can do whatever they want. And if obviously there's nuances as far as like workplace situations go. Yes. But you know what? I'm a speech pathologist. I sit on the floor 90% of the day. Mm -hmm. It's because I work with toddlers for the most part. Mine is not. I just like it. (laughs) I love sitting on the floor. Mm -hmm. I prefer sitting on the floor. And my thought behind that is if we – like what kind of adults are we helping to create if we tell them you don't have a choice in these things? Yes. And that's to where like I do try to listen to – teachers because again going back to what you and I were talking about your idea of functional is probably different than mine again that real life is basically just the high school version of functional so I do try to always take a step back when they say it and say what do you mean tell me more because if they can give me a specific problem that they foresee happening okay great then how do we go about teaching them a skill to be able to advocate for that instead because that's really what it comes down to maybe if they hate people but for some reason I don't have a good example. They want to be a nurse, and but they don't want to talk to people all day. Mm-hmm. We might be looking at then, what are the requirements of this job? The requirements of this job in this setting are to talk to patients, talk to doctors. Is that something that you want to do and want to be able to figure out how to accommodate? Sometimes they say no. Sometimes they say yes. And then all of a sudden our therapy shifts and there's changes, they just didn't realize that. So it comes back to while you're trying to change teachers' minds, bringing in the kid, what do they want? What do they think? A lot of times teachers tell me, I never thought of asking them. Oh. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, it's this real life idea is something that's completely prescribed by the adults in their lives. Mm-hmm. By the time kids get to high school, they definitely have a lot of thoughts about what they're real life is going to look like. And sometimes they don't want to say it. I have a ton of kids who will say, I don't know when I ask them what they want to do. I had a kid this year tell me it's because my special interest is young. That's what I would like to do my whole life, but I don't think that's a choice. And I said, what's your special interest? And it took them months to feel comfortable with me to tell me it was sharks. And I was like, that's not young. You could be a marine biologist. Exactly. That's not young. I love sharks. <laughs> like a lot of people, what do you think Shark Week is for? A lot exactly. of people love sharks. But I think in middle school, like one time someone had made fun of this student for wearing a, like a shark shirt. And that was it. That's all it took for them to think I'm too old to like sharks. I shouldn't tell anybody that I like sharks. This is going to be an unpopular opinion, but I work with a wonderful behavior specialist who, like, kids will bring toys with them to school in high school, and people will be like, you can't have toys at school. She jumps in every single time. She goes, come to my office. I have toys galore. I have Star Wars toys, but they're toys. I buy them from the kids section. They are toys. Yeah, so many adults have action figure collections. Those Funko Pops. Yes. I have a whole basket of fidget toys in my living room. (laughs) Yes. Like, I... I'm fidgeting right now with something I just found on my table Yeah, because it's the same thing. And that's what else teachers have said. They can't have a fidget their whole life. And I know how I fidget. I usually fidget with a pen or my hair or I, if I know I have a long meeting, I'll put earrings in and I'll twist my earrings. As soon as someone said that to me, I started bringing fidgets to meetings all the way to like the pocket size putty 
And someone said something to me one time of, do you think that's professional? And I said, did I not sound professional when I was speaking? They said, you did. I said, did the parent say anything? No. I said, until a parent says something to me that it's distracting or I will continue to fidget, but it's usually in my lap or behind my computer screen. And so again, I feel like by trying to help kids be more accepted, I've also been more accepting of myself and what I need, which I think is a huge eye-opener for teachers and other staff in the building as well. Yeah, and I think that's something, definitely something that I'm trying to accomplish with this podcast is to make people aware that you're not just talking about the people that you work with when you're talking about neurodiversity. You're talking about your colleagues. You're talking about Mm -hmm. your friends, even if you don't realize it. Yep. And openly accommodating yourself and using things that you need is a radical act, as you're pointing out. And we as neurodivergent professionals should be doing that because then we're normalizing it for the kids and the Mm -hmm. students that we work with and putting it in the face of other professionals who don't even consider that it could be a possibility that we're in the room with them. Yep. Which is mind blowing to them. And I think that I have always been very passionate about my students with ADHD because I saw myself in them. I just didn't necessarily realize it. And that has been one of my best tools also is for my ADHD students when teachers say things like they're just making a choice. They just didn't want to turn it in. When I have the student in my office bawling because they're like, I forgot to hit submit on Google Classroom. I'm like, yeah, you did do the work. You just literally forgot the last step because it wasn't written down. So most of my students have, don't forget to hit submit (laughs) in like a label on their computer. But when teachers are saying things like this to me, and then I use real life experiences, because people always say, you can't do that as a grown up. Yes, I can. I do it all the time. The consequences are bigger. Sure. There's consequences for it. If I don't turn in IP paperwork, I get yelled at. If I don't submit my billing on time, I get a nasty email. And if I do it enough, I'm sure I wouldn't have a job. But if we just constantly tell kids that they're making a choice, we're not teaching them any skills to build it. But I actually, I and I think you might have responded to it too, that I posted on Instagram, my Instagram story the other day about my frustration with following directions or like yes. doing X, Y, and Z without any support. And I had so many people respond to me like, I write myself checklists for everything. I make to-do lists every single day. Mm-hmm. And I do too. If I don't write it down. If you use a calendar. Exactly. I would say probably 90% of neurotypical people use a calendar. Yeah. They're all using a visual support. Exactly. Exactly. If you use a to-do list. Yes. Any and, of that. Anything. Expiration and- dates on food. Ooh. That's a visual. That's a good point. They're not just posting it in the store and saying, remember when this goes bad. They're putting it right on the food. That's such a good point. And and (laughs) Stop signs. Visual. (laughs) Yeah. And you're so right too that, yeah, we all use visuals. Uh Okay. So do you have any final thoughts about collaborating with teachers? So I think the biggest thing it sounds like is reminding them who they're working with and who actually needs to be going out into the real world. And really who's the boss of the IEP. Because it's not the case manager and it's not the parents. It's the kid. They're the boss. 
I think is like the biggest, their name is on the paperwork. Yeah. So with the IEP, do you have any tips with goal writing, writing goals so that they still fit within those requirements, but are affirming goals? Absolutely. Yes. I do a lot of things that look similar to what things looked like before for high school because it was still a lot of problem solving. I've taken out conversation goals completely unless, again, the student says that's something. Because sometimes my students really are like, I would love to ask follow-up questions. I have no idea what to ask or how to word that. So then that's a little bit different. But we had very, the categories of social language goals at high school fell within what we're saying is okay in neurodiversity affirming. It's things like perspective taking, problem solving, self-advocacy, but then how do we shift those goals to not be just compliance-based? And a lot of times I had a really simple little phrase at the end, as determined by the student. And that's all it takes because a, a guy could say it's a problem and they're like, it doesn't bug me. I don't care. Okay, then it's not a problem. So even, or when impacting the student or things like per self-report are huge. Yeah. To piggyback off of that, I guess, I always take issue to a certain extent with like, where's the neurodiversity affirming goal bank? And there are some really good goal banks out there, but I always say like, it's not about the goal. Mm -mm. It's what you're actually doing. Yeah. Because you can write a perfect sounding goal, but really what affirming practice is like clinical decision-making. It's not a goal. No. It's what you do. And I will say I have, which I've never written social language goals this way anyways, but you have to take out percentages because you have to be able to measure the goal flexibly. So there are some things for goal writing that will make that therapeutic piece easier for you. So I'll do out of so many trials, I'll do rating scales, I'll do rubrics, never percentages, because if we're going off right or wrong, if that's a perspective taking goal, if it's a problem solving goal, there are millions of answers because that's all inferential information. So you can't really say that, tell a kid that their perspective is wrong because they're telling you that's their truth. <laughs> so taking out the percentage, making sure that we're not using replacement goals too of things like we'll generate three expected replacement behaviors for an unexpected behavior because I've seen those. I've been tagged on them. I can think of like exact kids. I'm like, I never want to look at their paperwork ever again (laughs) because I know I'm going to go back and be so ashamed at myself. (laughs) But I also have gone back and looked at those kids to shift and really sit there and think about what was I trying to accomplish? What was the kid trying to accomplish with this goal? And then can I shift that accomplishment piece or what I was trying to accomplish, the kid was trying to accomplish? And right there, as I'm saying that, is the problem, what I was trying to accomplish. Because it should always be what the kid wants to accomplish. And all of those old goals were what I wanted to accomplish, what the social worker wanted to accomplish. And I think that's maybe actually my biggest advice for goal writing is you shouldn't be thinking about what do I want to accomplish. You should be thinking, how can I support this in a session? How can I take data on it? But the content of the goal should be what the student wants to accomplish. 
So to follow up on that, and I'm going to use like personal experience Mm -hmm. with this. I went a long time really being desperate for friendship, but not knowing how to do it, not being able to maintain it, not really knowing anything about what friendship really consisted of. Now, reflecting back on it, I do believe that was part of masking for me because I grew up a girl who, and I feel like at least that when you're a girl, social capital relies a lot on how many friends you have. And so now as an adult, I don't really seek out friendships. I'm cool with where I'm at as far as my social circle goes. And so what I want to know is when you're talking to high schoolers about what they want and what their goals are, how do you help them to parse out what is something that's like authentic to them versus what might be a part of masking or does it really need to be parsed out? Because I guess as I'm saying it, in a way, me wanting friendships was an authentic desire at the Mm -hmm. time. It's just the source of it was not actually true to my true self. It was almost like an intrusive thought. Yeah. Yeah. It was part of masking for me for sure. Yeah. Have you thought about that? I think that this is a tricky one, especially for my autistic students, because I don't want to invalidate that feeling either. Right. And that's what I'm thinking right now is like, you can't just assume. If someone had told you, no, it'll be fine because when you're a grown up, you'll have the friends that you want and you'll get over that. That would have been so invalidating. Ah, no, I don't know if it would have helped. We do talk a lot about, yes, like ideal qualities of a friend or a romantic partner or because I think I had a student, I feel like this is a good relevant example. It's a little bit different because it goes back to the romantic relationship piece, but constantly going through girlfriends and when we stopped and asked, because like would be miserable all the time. And when we asked, he was like, I'm in high school. I'm supposed to have a girlfriend. And we're like, wait a minute. We get that's like the social pressure, but what do you want in a girlfriend? And then when we like went through his list, the girl that he was currently dating, he was like, that's not her. <laughs> we're like, uh-huh. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and he's like, oh. And they broke up. He broke up with her. And we were like, the social worker and I were like, that was on a whim, but such a great. And so I do. A lot of times we'll start because I usually start with a vision board at the beginning of the school year. And so it goes into like social goals, school goals, home goals, all of this type of stuff. And we make sure to make it very clear. If your social goal is to hang out with one friend, or maybe your social goal is to make a new friend on that video game that you love, or I don't really understand how the video game relationship works, but I try to encourage it the best that I can. And my kids always make fun of me, but, and then later on we can talk about, and a lot of times I think we have to wait for that to come up naturally too. Cause if I just forced all of a sudden, you don't have to have all these friends. A lot of my sweet, innocent high schoolers would panic because it's the same thing. Like you were saying that. And I was like, this is an entire social language group that I have who they've done social thinking, they would tell you that they thrive on social thinking. They're like, we, I have to make eye contact. And I'm like, you don't have to make eye contact. You get so, you get so fidgety. You get so, and they're like, well, I don't like it, but I have to. I'm like, you don't. <laughs> and they are like, 
the hardest group for me. They're the sweetest boys. They'll do, but it's like the forced icky compliance. They're like, well, are you going to take out the workbook? Meaning like the social thinking workbooks. And I'm always like, no, I'm not. And so waiting for them to genuinely bring up social problems, I think is the key. Yeah. So I guess the leaving it open so this can always mm-hmm. change when you if and when you change your mind yeah. is a way to not avoid those things but at least keep the conversation open mm-hmm. so on that note about deprogramming kids <laughs> so how often is that a thing that comes up when you're working with high schoolers so it was a re- weird number of kids come up the last two years, but for the most part, those kids have been dismissed because they're following neurotypical social norms. So they get dismissed. I don't see them because they're so high masking at this point, which is fine because I truthfully, I would say that's one of my weaknesses when it comes to affirming practices is I don't know how to like deprogram them. It's so embedded in everything they do. And because yeah, it's embedded with school also, it's yes. not just the speech therapy that you're having to work yes. with. It's everything else. Yes. And I would say that they're typically males, but I would almost say that a lot of times those kids present more like autistic females. Sounds so weird, but they are very high masking. They are are so incredibly social. They have so many friends. A lot of times their special interests are like being kind and anti-bullying, like social justice things where I'm like, this feels very different. And those are the kids that are really hard because again, it's like that thought of the more friends I have, the better my life is. And so that it's just really hard and it is not an area of strength for me. And I think it's something that I personally have to give more thought to. It's like, how do we balance this for them? Because if they are wanting that social thinking, to me too, I'm like, who am I to say no? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if it, if they found it to be a tool that helps them, then... Because there are plenty of autistic adults who think that different therapies they went through in their childhood were helpful for them and mm-hmm. teaching them certain skills. And I definitely don't, I wouldn't want to deny that for anyone yeah. in their experience. I think sometimes though, that what I think about is people outside of the neurodiversity affirming movement don't acknowledge that there could be an alternative mm-hmm. to what we're doing. And I think it's funny because social thinking is this huge thing that isn't completely researched either. I haven't found any like valid studies. I'm sure there's some out there, but so like, why are we using this as the sole option? Because I've also gotten that response of what you're doing isn't research-based. It is. I'm still using, I'm still using visual supports. I'm still using the quote unquote autism research. It just looks a little bit different. I'm still teaching problem solving. I'm still teaching perspective taking. Yeah. Have you ever had to, because I know an issue that I've heard of in the schools or just like being part of different social media groups is parents wondering whether or not to tell their child that they are autistic. So have you had to be the person to introduce that to an older student? I have. In the school-based setting, we have to ask 
parents, we have to have permission, which makes it so hard. For parents that say absolutely not, then a lot of times I use my own experiences to the kid without saying things. Or I'll just introduce the idea of neurotypes. And I'll say, I don't know what your neurotype is. And I lie a little bit. And I just say, this is something I like to teach all of my kids about. Because if you can understand the way that you think, learn, understand, you're going to be a lot more successful. So I still teach the concepts just without saying the exact words. But I have had parents say, I don't know how to tell them. Is that something you guys can do? And I'm always like, I'll do it. (laughs) Because typically in my school, it would be either like the case manager, social worker, me, or the psychologist. And I would say that I am the most, people like to call me like an extremist. And everyone else is coming along like within that team for the most part. But so I always volunteer because I want to make sure that it's done in a positive light. And I really go through, this is neurodiversity. These are neurotypes. And then I usually take out their evaluation paperwork. And I say, let's see if we can find any of these words in here. So then they're reading their own paperwork as well. I had a student have a huge meltdown about she took her paperwork home. And one of the functional measures is a rating scale and there's aggression on there. And one of her teachers rated her really high for aggression. And she's like, I've never hit them. And I was like, oh, nope, that's not what that means. That means like verbally aggressive. And she's like, I don't think I'm, and I was like, hang on. Are there students that you have to stand up to in that class? Because I knew which class it was. And there's a lot of social conflict. And she wasn't a part of it. But she's very passionate about everyone being treated fairly, equity. And so like going back through even, and she's like, oh, so I don't care about that high score then. And I was like, we don't care about that high score. Uh Uh-uh. Nope. She's like, I'll still keep being aggressive because I'm doing the right thing for my peers. I'm like, you got it, girl. I don't have favorite students. Wink, wink. But if I did, she's it. And she knows it because she's just so cool. She like encouraged us to explore her neurotype because she wasn't sure. She wanted it. It was all on her. It was awesome. And then she's like, I'm I'm embracing it. I'm like, you go, girl, you go. On the other side, though, have there been kids that you've introduced it to that have had a different kind of response? Yes, I've had kids who, and typically it's my kids that know already, that have a different response. They don't want to talk about it. They don't. So I think that's why I, if we're going to introduce it, I like to do it or be a part of it because I want them to have that positive experience because I've seen these other kids where when I say things or I always have them do a little IEP scavenger hunt at the beginning of the year. And I've had kids say, I don't want to look at that. And when I say, okay, tell me more, they say, it says I'm autistic. I don't want to look at it. And I say, got it. Okay. And when we put it away. And I say, I'll just take out the gold page then so you know what we're doing in speech. And again, it's those kids who were early diagnosed, who have been gone through all this really traumatic stuff, educational trauma, really. And I would say the majority of my kids that react like that can all pinpoint at least two, if not more, instances in their educational career that made them hate school. And those are the kids that won't talk about it with me every time. Eventually they do, or I wouldn't know that they have one to two. (laughs) Right. Oh, wow. That's heavy. Yep. And you think like, it goes back even to like that big and little problem. 
of that seemed like such a little problem to the teacher at the time. They have that fourth grade teacher has no idea that as a senior in high school, this kid still hates school because of that little thing. Wow. Oh, I don't even know. I don't know what to say. Yep. It's nuts. Some things I have to just sit with for a second because I just, I think it just frustrates me so much that I see even my two-year-olds already masking Mm -hmm. with different people. And I'm like, I don't want them to go down that road. And I... we're here talking about all this good stuff, but it's, oh my gosh, it's feel, it feels so frustrating and so, like, we're so powerless sometimes. And even though it's all good stuff, I don't know that the educational and medical systems are at a place for it to be good stuff yet. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So as much good as, and I think that in schools especially can be another challenge, is I feel like we had our 20, 30 minute session and I'm like, yeah, we're making changes. This is awesome. And then the next week they come and we're redoing it all because they're sitting in a system that's not built for them and is just reinforcing their masking and their idea that they don't actually need this accommodation or. Is there anything that you feel like you have been able to do to affect change in your immediate area of influence? I bought a lot of different biographies, books, etc. written by especially autistic individuals. And I rent them out to teachers. So when they say, I don't understand that, or I'm like, here, read this book. <laughs> and my favorite to do that with is the Welcome to the Autistic Community book, because it's short. And it's organized in chapters about certain things that I'll be like, read chapter, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, they'll give it back and be like, I get it. I'm like, yep. So things like like just making tools accessible. Something I do every April is, and I don't force my kids to do it, but I do a big autism awareness bulletin board just in my office. And I have a big what I wish teachers knew about me. And they can write on it. Before they write, I'm like, I'm going to share this with the IEP department and I tend to call it the IEP department instead of special education because my students hate that. So I say with the IEP department, they're always like, yeah, I want them to know. (laughs) I was like, okay. (laughs) And it ends up being really cool. And I think that's really powerful again, because it's coming from the kids and it's a little eye opening. And I've even had teachers sit there and be like, I think they're talking about me when it's like negative things. Which again, though, is like the like, you have to be uncomfortable to make a change. And it doesn't say who it is. Sometimes the teachers can figure it out. I've written them before because the kids are like, I don't want them to know my handwriting, but I want them to know. So it's powerful. It's easy. Sometimes kids will email me even be like, I've been thinking about it. And can you add this? Some of my kids get really into it, which is awesome. And that's again, easy. Like it doesn't have to be a whole bulletin board even. And then usually what I do too is like at the beginning of the year, we'll do it again for my kids that have done it and been exposed to it, but it's in an email of like self-advocacy then. And they'll send it to their teachers. These are things you should know about me of how I learn and understand best. These are the accommodations that, and not all of my students are willing to do it. Sometimes it takes till senior year. Sometimes they won't do it at all and that's okay. But it's something that I think builds those self-advocacy skills and that comfort of being able to advocate for your true needs And I think it means a lot more coming from the student, again, to a teacher 
than the case manager or me saying they have this accommodation and I need you to follow it. That is really powerful. Wow. (laughs) It's really fun. I'm like like getting emotional. So I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about, I don't actually, in my state, they call it something different, but I think you said that y'all call it life skills, right? Or do you say self-contained? Both. We actually have a program name for it. I want to hear just about collaborating with that classroom and implementing neurodiversity affirming practices in that setting because I feel like that might be a more challenging situation. So with our life skills classrooms, I it is a little bit harder because I think some of those, again, like the behavioral approaches tend to be more ABA based. It was actually really diff this one's hitting a little bit of a chord for me because it was a really difficult year with this. The teachers got it our teaching assistants didn't. And it's because a lot of them, I hate to say it this way because I don't want this to be like a blanket statement, but a lot of them are older and have kids. So we were getting a lot of when I, when my kid, but you're not their parent, so you can't do it that way. Again, before I talked about the behavior specialist that I love, she is sometimes even more extreme than I am. So she'll be like, doesn't matter. And I'm like, okay, you're right. Sorry, I was wrong. She's like, let him do it. I'm like, got it. Yep. <laughs> um, that can be really tricky because they also spend so much more time with the kids than I do, than other teachers spend with kids. And so the relationship is different. And so then when I come in and I say, oh, I don't know that we should do it like that, everybody gets defensive because everybody, I like to believe, and I know that this isn't always true, but I like to believe everybody really is doing what they think is best for that child, for that classroom. And so it does feel uncomfortable when someone's, and sometimes I just can't get us away from some of those ABA things like first then for compliance, like reward charts, token boards. And I have gotten it to a point where we in the classrooms that I get to collaborate with, we reserve those things for tougher cases where maybe we can't quite figure something out. So we need, and again, like a safety issue. So I do have a kid that I was like, yeah, sure. Use a token board because the unsafe behaviors were truly unsafe, like running around the parking lot, climbing to the top of the bleachers, like the outdoor bleachers in a football stadium and like leaning over the top gate. And So sometimes we're panicked and we do need something while we figure it out because sometimes too, let's even say like the leaning over the gate at the top of the bleachers might be a sensory thing. We like the way that feels. How do we replace that? And maybe the OT is only in once a week. So it's not like we can just have her come out and say, can you look at this? We have to wait. And I think that is the tricky part sometimes What I, and I always like to try to stay in my lane a little bit. I really don't, but (laughs) so I think I try to just do what I can control. So things like this is the language we can use. So we don't really use expected and unexpected. We use safe and unsafe. Things like if you feel like they need a first, then they probably need a schedule because they probably have no idea what's coming next. They're not comprehending the day. So that behavior is coming out because they're confused. Teaching staff how to model 
And at this point too, I just teach them. It doesn't matter what kids are in the room. We're modeling with easily mitigable gestalts, self-advocacy phrases, protesting, how to honor a protest. So I do the things within my control and that seem more speech-like. The hard part is too, I don't think that we don't always know what actually gets carried over. And I'm a highly anxious person. So I always just assume like when I leave the room, doesn't happen, (laughs) which I shouldn't because I know based on student progress that it is happening. I just think that especially for those of us that tried to be so affirming, that piece can be so hard because we can teach it and people will be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then turn around and they're like, she's crazy. I just wanted her to stop. Oh, and that has been me before of they think you're crazy. And I'm like, they told me yes. And they're like, they didn't mean it. I'm like, oh. Yeah. There's like a certain level of needing to relinquish control that I have a lot of difficulty with. It's hard. Yeah. And I actually feel like the more I learn about neurodiversity, the harder it gets actually, because I want something like that I really hyper fixate on and feel very passionate about is all of this. And so it's really hard for me to let it go because I'm so passionate about it. And I spend so much time doing things related to it that I'm like, why doesn't everyone want to just learn it? (laughs) And my perspective taking isn't the best about it. I say that all the time on here that I'm just like, I can't understand how people don't hear something one time and are like, oh, yeah. makes so much sense. Yeah. And I don't know that I have... I don't even know if that answered the question that you asked me because I think that was a harder question to answer in my brain than I realized. Not, I think it's probably it's probably something that still I think it's a bigger area of discussion that we need mm-hmm. in the field. And like the most and this is something that the social worker and I at the school that I work with have really pushed lately of we spent an entire institute day developing like an understanding your disability curriculum, not curriculum, but like finding supports online plan, I guess would be more like an instructional plan of how to teach our kids of varying abilities, how to do this. So we found social stories on Teachers Pay Teachers about understanding your IEP. And for some of my kids, it doesn't matter how much we teach it. They don't want to sit in their IEP meeting. It's just too much. It's too many people talking too fast because we have limited time, but then also how do we adapt that where maybe they can come in, share their name, something they liked about this year and something they didn't like. And maybe then they get to go back to class. So they're still involved. And then maybe next year they can share one more thing, but how do we scaffold that so they can be involved more? And I think something that's so good about that too is that even if you just have them come in and say hi, that can have the effect of humanizing the Mm -hmm. student because I would imagine that is something – I know that's something that I deal with my little kids because I think it's easy to forget that little kids are little people. They're humans. Um, They're going to be (laughs) grown-ups. Yeah, exactly. But I imagine that would be a thing with the older kids Mm -hmm. as well. Absolutely. Because then it becomes about test scores and grades and then numbers. And this is something we, I don't think we have time to get into this today, which I regret. But I would love to talk to you more about like assessments if you do them with this age group. But we definitely don't have time for that today, unfortunately. 
instead, can you just give us some quick tips for anyone who's working with high schoolers for things that they can implement into their sessions to make them more affirming? So like different supports that you use in your sessions. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. My biggest is asking the student. I always ask them, what does that mean to you? Or can you tell me more about that? Why did you do that? Sometimes teachers will email me and be like, they did this. And I'm always like, hey, I'll take care of it. And they come down and I'm like, why did you do this? What were you thinking? So always bringing it back to their perspective, whether it's for IEPs or in the session, building in special interests. So I've had kids that refuse to talk to me. And then I find out they love drawing maps. So the next time they come in, I just have paper out. And they're like, what is this for? I'm like, maps. And usually it takes two to three sessions where we're just quiet and doing something together. But then they slowly start bringing up their goal area and things. So really building in time for that special interest and that shared enjoyment of that special interest. Giving them free time, I think, is another. If you have a group, I always try to build in five to ten minutes at the beginning of the session. It's not something they earn. It's not something, if we have time, where it's a free-for-all which sounds chaotic and crazy. And it is, and it's awesome. They're, they have saved memes to show each other throughout the week. They've built things on Roblox that they want to show each other. And they've been waiting all week to show it. So it ends up being exactly what we want a social language group to be by giving that time. And I would say that really, those like child-led, student-led pieces, making time for that is my biggest piece of advice. And that has is what has truly changed my relationships with my students to make therapy more effective. That's fantastic. I love that advice of making the free time not something that they earn. Hmm. That's so good. And they know, um, like I said, a timer, there's a limit to it because we still have to get stuff done. But that's so good. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on today. I certainly learned a lot about doing all of this with high schoolers. And it's, I think, something that we don't discuss enough when we're talking about neurodiversity affirming practices. So just thank you for sharing your expertise and your experience on this. Of course, it was so much fun. Yay, I'm glad. So where can the listeners find you online? Absolutely. I'm on Instagram at The Communication Classroom. And then I also have a Teachers Pay Teachers store with that same name. Awesome. Is there anything particularly that you would like to promote that you have coming up as far as projects or anything like that? Not so much coming up, but on my Teachers Pay Teachers, if you've been listening and thinking I'd love to do more about effective communication and things like that, I do have a neurodiversity workbook that has a whole chapter exactly on that with a visual of how to break that down that I think is a great place to start for people who are maybe feeling overwhelmed. The Neurodiversity Workbook is fantastic, so I highly recommend it. And yeah, all right. Thank you so much again for being here today. Thank you so much again for listening to today's episode. I hope that you found the information valuable. And if you did, please share it with others who you think would benefit from this information. And also rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. And I will catch y'all again in another episode very soon. Bye.